Welcome to Piecing It All Together. My name is Bo Sanders, and in a minute, you're going to hear Randy, a sermon that he gave actually at St. Andrew's United Church in Canada, uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, specifically. They gave us permission to share this with you, and if you enjoy it, you can actually go to their website and see all of the good things that they have going on there. This sermon is called Piecing Our Humpty Dumpty World Together Again, and I hope that you will enjoy it. I wanted to let you know about a couple things coming up. January 14th is a Tuesday night, and at 5.30 Pacific, that's 8.30 Eastern, uh, we're going to have a book club. And we're going to give a chance for those of you who uh, have read the book, Shalom in the Community of Creation, uh, a chance to talk with the author, Randy Woodley. (laughs) And uh, that's something we wanted to do last year. The schedule sort of didn't work out, but we wanted to make sure that we followed up and provided that opportunity. So I hope that you will put that on your calendar. If you haven't got the book yet or haven't read the book yet, that gives you time to catch up. January 14th is when that's going to be. And then, starting in February and then continuing in March and April, we're going to be reading Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys by Richard Twist. It is Richard's final book, and we're going to be celebrating, actually, the anniversary of his passing on February 9th with a special episode. And so uh, we thought in tribute to him, we would engage his work, Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys by IVP Press, and you can find that anywhere that you get books. So I hope that you will pick that up and uh, join us for those lively conversations. They're going to be on February 11th, March 10th, and April 14th, all Tuesday nights. They will all be at 530 Pacific. So those are your four book club dates, January 14th for Shalom in the Community of Creation, and then February 11th, March 10th, and April 14th for Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys. We want to thank our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for your support, especially during uh, this transition for Randy and myself. And uh, as he has moved east and as things have changed a little bit around here for me, it has been wonderful to know uh, that we had that support there to keep us going. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, there is a link in the show notes. And we just wanted to say thank you to all of you who have believed in us and in this project. And um, hope that you will join us for these upcoming conversations. Please let us know any comments, any questions, any follow-ups, any concerns. And uh, we will be scheduling some live Zoom chats. So uh, enjoy. If you've never heard Randy preach Uh, He has a very unique style, and I know that you're going to enjoy this listen. Soon to follow in your feed is a conversation that Randy and I had a couple days ago, and uh, that is going to be our next episode as we launch into Season 2 around here. So make sure to look for that. All right, friends, that's enough peace. (laughs) What do you think you're doing? Really forming community out there? Let's hope so. Randy is a Cherokee teacher, poet, activist, former pastor, missiologist, and historian. 
He teaches at George Fox University in Oregon right now, but uh, he also does like 800 other things, including this wonderful farm school indigenous Christian project called LOA. I know I'm saying that wrong, so you can correct it when you come up. Uh, he's done that in other parts of the country, and at times he and Edith have paid the price. Uh, they had a wonderful farm school and community in Kentucky, which they were driven off of uh, in the form of 50 caliber machine gun fire when they tried to build righteous community uh, a number of years ago, and that led to migrating across the continent to Oregon. <clears throat> Randy is, was also a long-experienced pastor. Uh, he's published a number of books and articles that he might refer to, and Edith and Randy have this wonderful project of growing heritage seeds and sharing them and keeping them alive. We met, as I said, at a gathering in um, California, and they came with seeds that were to be, uh, to be shared with everybody so the heritage seeds can go back and stay alive all across the continent. Oshio, Aganali. Uh, Ani Kituwachi, Randy Woodley. So, uh, in our language, um, greetings, hello, good. It just really means good uh, friends. Uh, I'm Kitua, which is the proper name for our Cherokee people, and uh, my name is Randy Woodley. So, of course, he's mentioned Edith Woodley, of which I can't be a good Randy Woodley without. Um, so, uh, thank you uh, for having us here today. Uh, Russ, thanks for the invitation. So, uh, when I was talking to, to Russ earlier on the phone a couple days ago, um, I said, so give me a feeling of what sorts of things you want to talk about, want me to talk about. And so he said, well, I want you to introduce yourself and tell some, some things about yourself. And, and I want you to uh, share about the experience in Kentucky and what happened. And, and, uh, and, and I want you to give us some, you know, um, Something good, whatever you do, some indigenous wisdom and, you know, that sort of thing. And I said, well, so how much time do I have to do this? And he said, oh, 20, 25 minutes. <laughs> so I thought, okay, 20, 25 minutes for the introduction. 20 to 25. So I've got, you know, like 70, 75 minutes here today. So I'm really happy to be able to fill that up. Uh, yeah. So I guess the, the, the first thing I should tell you is that uh, maybe a way to introduce ourselves is to, uh, to say that uh, I am not a son of Adam and Eve. I'm a son of Shelu and Kanati. Shelu and Kanati are our first woman and first man in, in our stories. And, and some of our stories are hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of years old. And uh, most of our, our uh, Shelu and Kanati stories are. Shelu is our corn mother. Now, my people grew corn and they hunted. And so we lived in sedentary villages, whereas my white people, uh, they were buffalo hunters, lived in teepees and all the ones that you see on TV. So, uh, but... Uh, so I'm a child of the corn woman, the corn mother, and of Kanati, the hunter. And I know I'm a child of Shelo and Kanati because I grow corn every year. 
I grow Cherokee corn. Um, I grow yellow Cherokee yellow dent corn and Cherokee blue eagle corn and, and other Cherokee corns. Um, and they grow 10 to 12 feet high in Oregon where we're at. But in Cherokee country, they actually grow about 14 to 15 feet high. And they're about as, as much sometimes from 9 to 20 percent protein in corn. So that's about all I'll say about seeds. If you really want to know about seeds, we'd have Edith come talk to you. She's really the expert. But um, and and uh, and I still hunt now and then. And when I do, I know I'm a child of Kanati because I say a prayer before I leave in the morning. And if an animal doesn't give its deer doesn't give itself to me, then I don't take its life. And, and I know I'm a child of Shelu and Kanati because I know the stories. And I carry on ceremonies, and I've taught them to my children. And that is my Old Testament, so to speak. So what I want to talk to you today about is is not to change the story that you may have as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, but to try and help you see a little bit different perspective. And I'm, I'm going to tell you why. And there's nothing wrong with being a son and daughter of Adam and Eve, Um. Uh, necessarily, it's just what that's turned into. And so what I want to talk today just a little bit about is sort of our journey and what that has to do with the Western worldview and an indigenous worldview. And I see my job here today as a little bit of a warm-up for Mi'kmaq people that, uh, and, and, and in hopes that you will continue to invite more and more here and, and not only invite them here, but you will go to their things and you will listen to them because... My bottom line today will be that the Western worldview, uh, as it stands in the West today, is not going to take us into a viable future. In fact, it's the very thing impeding a viable future. Um, I'm pretty sure the Earth is going to survive, but I'm not convinced that humans are going to have the privilege of being here to help it along. And so it's sort of like we're racing, you know, off a cliff for money and for, for ideas. And, 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 and we're not going to stop until we get off that cliff. Now, I know in Canada you're doing a, a bit more than we are in the U.S. And in fact, uh, in the last two and a half years, uh, we've, as you probably know, we've gone backwards, um, which is a real crime uh, against the earth. But um, we're, we have real hopes that that's going to all end soon, that nightmare. Um, so I wanted to, 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 to try and give you a picture, uh, first in Western culture, and then later I want to give you a picture in Cherokee culture. So in Western culture, I thought, you know, what, what, what is fragile uh, and uh, is, is difficult to put back together? Well, I thought of the simple children's nursery rhyme. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. So there's lots of interpretations of what that that nursery rhyme is about. Um, Probably the most accurate would be uh, that it was during the English Civil War in the 1650s. And it was Humpty Dumpty was the name of a cannon that fell off and broke and they lost the battle as a result of it. Um, But I'm going to tell you a story a little bit later. But... I, because there were so many interpretations, I felt at liberty to say, to me, Humpty Dumpty, or an egg, represents a holistic worldview. Okay? 
that holistic worldview has been broken in the West. And I don't have time to go through all the different stages, but basically, you know, uh, um, we can start with Plato, although uh, Russ has a really interesting uh, take on that. He, I don't know if he shared with you before, and I'm not going to now, but he can share with you later that maybe Plato wasn't the Platonic dualist that we think, but just kind of interpreted that way. That was really interesting. I appreciated hearing that. Um, but as a result of Plato and Aristotle and on through the ages, and, and we had folks that helped us along along the way, like uh, Jerome and Ambrose and Augustine and, you know, John Locke helped us race for money, and uh, Rene Descartes helped us devalue the human body and, uh, and with the mind over that, and uh, Francis Bacon helps us separate from nature, and we had all this help with the Western worldview up to this point that created a very significant Platonic dualism. And that dualism says that the products of the mind or the products of the spirit, if you're of that persuasion, are more important than the products of the physical, the material, or as we look at it now, the earth. Now that's infected our... Um, economic systems, our education systems, our political systems, our religious systems, all of them. Um, it is ubiquitous. And as a result, we know in our minds that we were destroying the earth. And yet, we're still allowing it to happen. And so, my sort of great cause is like, how do we change that? Well, I've figured out, in, in my view, it's the culprit is the Western worldview, that, that we can't change it from the Western worldview. The reason all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again is because they are the same people of the same mind who want Humpty Dumpty to be put together in a different way, than a holistic way. Now, the, the scripture that I mentioned... Um, uh, where Jesus says, uh, it's not really, I'm not really talking about swearing or yet, even letting your yes be yes and your no be no, which is a pretty good idea. But I'm talking about Jesus' worldview, Jesus' perspective. He was not an Enlightenment-bound thinker. He was not a Platonic dualist. So when Jesus basically said, hey, look, you know, the heaven is sacred, the earth is sacred, uh, everything is sacred... He was saying that what is physical is just as spiritual as it is physical. And what is spiritual is just as physical as it is spiritual. So the earth and all the creatures and all everything living within it is just as spiritual because it's all related and it's all one. It's all whole. So we shouldn't see one as more important than the other. So, I was in a, uh, uh, I think it was a Native men's retreat. I was up almost on, on the border of B.C. and Washington State, and we were in Nooksack territory. And uh, a Nooksack elder was coming to greet us, and he just came back from um, a meeting of the elders. And every now and then, our elders have to meet together, our language speakers, to talk about new words. Because we don't have words in our language for all that modernity and colonialism has brought. And so he came back and he was talking about the word they were dealing with is like, how do we translate plastic? 
plastic. That's the word that they dealt with. And he said, and we talked about it for hours. <clears throat> and what we, he said, what we finally figured out was that everything else on earth has spirit. Wood, metal, everything, except for plastic. I thought that was interesting. And, and it's especially interesting, excuse me for sort of uh, uh, going off a little bit on a bunny trail, but that we're all taking in plastic, microplastics, into our bodies all the time. Our fish are eating it. Our animals are eating it. And so it's becoming a part of our system. And I thought, isn't that what modernity is about, is to turn us all into things that don't have spirit, right? And we become plasticized. So my wife and I, we were, as uh, Russ mentioned, we've uh, been in ministry, so to speak. We've had um, been in service to our own indigenous people for uh, over 30 years. Um, We've done everything from houseless uh, assistance to uh, um, uh, teenage pregnancy counseling and young mothers' uh, classes and after-school programs for kids and um, summer drug-free dances and uh, language classes and you know, you name it, we sort of have done it over the years, uh, food closets and baby needs closets and on and on. We've served our people. And so what we figured out um, back in about uh, 1999, to, yeah, I think it was 99, um, we thought, you know, we're going about this all wrong. So what happens is that we're doing the same things the missionaries have done over all the years. And, and by the way, that's not always been good, as you may know. Uh, and we're doing this piecemeal. We're dealing with this here. We're dealing with this here. And, and, and each little piece, we were trying to make it whole, but it's not whole. So what do we need to do? So we got the vision that what we need to do is actually create a place for our native people and non-natives, about uh, one half of the people who would come to our uh, place that he mentioned, Russ mentioned, um, were non-native and who were seeking to learn from a different worldview, a different perspective, an indigenous worldview. And, and, and we need to come together. We need to offer community. Um, we need to offer a place, um, sort of a combination. And I don't know if you've heard of these places or not, but does anybody remember Francis and Edith Schaefer's Labrie? Yeah, Labrie is a place where you can come to school and work and live. And, and uh, um, so I have a list of favorite fundamentalists. He's one of my favorite fundamentalists. Uh, so, and then um, has anybody ever heard of the Highlander School? The Highlander schools where Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks and Andrew Young and all the rest went to school. You saw, in the old days, you saw a picture. as a newspaper article. It was uh, at the Highlander School, and it shows Martin King and uh, Rosa Parks, civil rights activists. Who, and in the, the headlines of the paper was, uh, uh, King uh, trains at communist school. Uh, and, um, and so it was a, uh, a place that started uh, to empower black sharecroppers, actually, in the 1940s. And it developed into sort of the the hotbed of learning for the civil rights movement in the United States. So um, we, were, we were trying to do uh, something of a sort of a native version of both of those combined. And we had a community. We had a, about a dozen people living there. We had elders who lived there, uh, our native elders who were sort of our go-tos. And we had schools, and our schools would get 40 to 50 people each time. And, 
and we were uh, really actually um, having a and, and and they came in with a for a whole experience um, to experience a wholeness of the way that we do things in an indigenous way, and so and it was really successful. And then, like he said, um, a, a group of white supremacists, um, paramilitary group. Uh, came and set up a 50 caliber machine gun on our property line. They didn't want us there anymore. They didn't want native people there. And, uh, and over time, since our local governments and federal governments, different agencies wouldn't help us um, because of who we were, uh, we eventually had to sell our property at about half the appraised value. And then it put us into about a 10-year tailspin. And that's how I became a professor. Um, I, I thought that's how everybody became a professor. I didn't know. So, uh, so that's what we did. And so our journey now has been over the last 10 years is to uh, recreate that holistic indigenous worldview experience for Native people and for non-Native people. To attack the dualism head on. To talk about ways in which that, that we... We, we see things just normally, not because we want to, but that's how we've been trained. That's how we've caught it. We, we see plants as plants and weeds when they all have value. Uh, most of the things that you know, Western society calls weeds, we call medicines. You know? We see animals and we see varmints. And one is good and one is bad because of that, 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 that dualistic worldview creates this binary where something has to win and something has to lose. And competition over cooperation. And, and there's all these little impediments to moving forward in the world of shalom, or we would say Elohe uh, in Cherokee, the world that our Creator has intended from the beginning. Um, so, I don't know how much time I've taken uh, so far. Uh, yeah, good means what, though? Uh, <laughs> so, I, I don't want to... Ten minutes left. Okay, great. So, uh, so I'm going to tell you two stories. Um, because, it, and I realize, you know, I, I am speaking to you in a Western milieu, right? I've got my microphone on and we're sitting in a kind of... You know, it's better than just pews, right? I like, I like this better than pews. Yeah, so... so. By the way, I, when I, I pastored a church in Carson City that became uh, somewhat of a model for traditional people, um, tradition, our traditional Native people, and um, it wasn't long before we were pastoring, and, and people began to ask, "Why are we sitting in these pews?" You know, it's like, and so uh, I said, "Oh, you know, I've been waiting for months for somebody to say that," and uh, and, and so they said, "Well, let's set, our way is to sit in a circle," you know, and so okay, so so we ended up getting rid of the pews. And, uh, of course, then we became known to some of the older folks, most of who had left the church already, but they came back, and, and, and I became known as the pastor who got rid of the pews. That was my, my title. <laughs> Is that you? <laughs> These look just like the chairs we got, too. That's a, funny. So, yeah. So let me tell you two stories. Um, so one, one story, uh, and, and, and this is how we would do it, right? So I'm going to give you the last 10 minutes of how we would do it. So, and, and we have, by the way, um, we have what's called, our, our religion is called stomp religion, stomp dance. It's, uh, 
the the creator. Oh, I, another thing I wanted to, to mention, sorry, just real quick, was about the egg. Uh, in our language, we have a word that really means two things at once. And it's the word for egg, and it means also chicken. And so I, I took that word and I experimented a little bit theologically with it and I, and I put it on Jesus. And Unasle Nahi is, it means the one who's behind everything, right? And our, our biggest symbol of, of, of the thing that everything's behind is the sun. And so our people, um, we would raise our hands to the sun and we would pray, and we would touch ourselves, and and uh, and then our symbol. Someone earlier was asking me about the symbol. It's the it's the sun on the outside, and then our fire, which we 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 sing and dance around the fire at night, all night long. Um, and that fire is so Udnathanahi uh, is the creator, but but it's the sun. We're not worshiping the sun, um, but when the sun comes to earth, that's our sacred fire. And there's very specific ways that has to be dealt with. And so, so I experimented with this word. Um, it's basically, it means um, the one behind everything and egg chicken. And I used it and I said, which basically means Jesus is both the creator and the son. And I don't know if you can do that with the English language or not, but 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 that was why I thought of egg first as, as a Humpty Dumpty when I first began. Um, and and you know one of you know my particular theology as a follower of Jesus is uh, and and uh, it doesn't matter to me uh, with our people if uh, they acknowledge the Creator, right? So the writers of the New Testament, at least uh, four of them believed that Jesus was, had what we call theologically, the efficacy of creation. That Jesus was a creator. So, right, so, but it's not a, that's not a theology that a lot of people have really gravitated to in the Western world. There's been a few. Um, uh, Sometimes the Cosmic Christ, Matthew Fox, and other folk, but but the idea is that um, they had to figure out what do we do with this Jesus? And so what they said was, oh, he made everything that was made, and nothing was made that was made without him. And and he uh, made everything, and he holds all things together. And all of these, uh, you know, uh, John one and Colossians one seventeen and following, and First um, uh, Corinthians eight six and Hebrews one one, and all these passages where they say, well, Jesus is a creator. So as a Cherokee, I can understand that pretty well. I, I, it's not a far fetched construct. It doesn't have to be proven through a Western scientific lens. Uh, I can understand what a, a, a God son is, a creator son. It, it's not hard. So, so that is, if you are a follower of Jesus and you're uh, a, a, a Cherokee, then to say that word just means that, oh, Jesus is also creator. And so I ask, as I've traveled around in Indian country for the last forever. <laughs> you know, who of your people always 
given their allegiance to? Who is your religion about? Who have you worshipped? And, and everybody says the same thing. Creator. Creator. So whether they recognize the name Jesus or not, that's who they were praying to. Now that's a Christian theology. I wouldn't ask a traditional person to believe that, but I can believe that. And I can understand, and it makes sense to me, that our people have always been worshiping Creator. And what that says is that Jesus didn't, uh, you know, come over on the boat with Columbus. Jesus was already here. And some people have a hard time with that. Well, God was here, but not Jesus, you know. We call that modalism. You know, like God's over here and Jesus is over here and the Spirit's here, and, you know. But uh, but that's not how I understand it. So anyway, maybe I only have time for one story. No, I don't know. Is it? I'll... I'll tell you the first story quickly. The first story uh, tells us about when our Cherokee people were bad. Now, we believe that we're, we're born mostly good, but a little bit of bad, a little bit of tendency to bad. And Trickster's job is to sort of uh, teach us not to be bad. Right? And, so, um, uh, and, and so the story is told that when we were acting bad at one point, um, we were beginning to kill the animals. And uh, only take the best parts and leave the rest to rot, not to be thankful, all of that. And so the animals decided they'd had enough. And so the animals got together and they said, what are we going to do about this? And so, so the bear said, I'll be in charge. And uh, if you're really trying to um, get the point across, you say it was the polar bears, the white bears. And the reason why is because bears we consider to be our closest relatives, closest to humans. And so it's sort of like people took charge only white people took charge kind of a common theme in Indian country um, and uh, so the the polar bear took charge and all the bears and they just said well well, how are they killing us let's figure this out and so uh, they said well they're shooting us with bows and arrows mostly so okay well let's go make bows and arrows and let's shoot them back and so um, so they started doing that and they, they put together bows and arrows and, and the bears began to practice and but they got big claws, you know, and so they, they couldn't hit anything. And, you know, like little rabbits and squirrels were getting hit unintendedly and things like that. And, and so they finally said, you know, we're going to have to cut our claws off so that we can be better shots so we can kill the Cherokee people, the humans. And uh, so, you know, the bears started thinking and one of them said, you know, that's how we make our living. You know, like we dig in stumps and dig in the ground and find grubs, and we can't do that. So, so they said, okay. And then by this time, the rest of the animals said, okay, we've heard from the bears. That's enough. Let's let's find someone else to lead us in this. And so, so they elected the inchworm. And so the inchworm led the council, and and the inchworm started thinking, and he listened to all the different animal people, and the inchworm finally listened to what they're saying, integrated, and said, okay, so I've got an idea. What if we put disease on them? And everybody said, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's put disease on them. <clears throat> and so they started thinking, and they started making up diseases, and they, they thought of chicken pox, and they thought of, you know, smallpox, and they thought of influenza and uh, spinal meningitis, and all these different diseases that they put on the Cherokee people. And so they all started to die. Now, we're a matrilineal, a matriarchal society, a matrix society. And so the story goes like this. Don't want to offend any men here, but actually I really don't care about offending men. So this story goes that first the children and the old people begin to die. And then the men begin to die. And then finally the strong women begin to die. And by the way, in our story, um, 
uh, of Shelu and Kanati. Shelu's the woman. She was created first. But, so um, so uh, I, 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 I was speaking a couple weeks ago at a church in Silverton, Oregon, and, and I began, I said, women are a lot smarter than men. And a friend of ours was in the back, and I said, you know how I know that? And our friend said, because Edith called you. <laughs> so, so they put the diseases on the people, and then even the women began to die, and they said, our tribe is not going to exist anymore. We, can't, we have to stop this somehow, and so let's go to the animals and beg them for forgiveness. So they went to the animals, and they begged them for forgiveness, and the animals said, you know what? It's too late. We're not going to give you any forgiveness. And so all this time they continued to die. And finally the plant people, the plant people held a council. And they felt sorry for the human beings. And they said, you know what? Let's, let's show them in their dreams how to heal themselves. Let's send them medicines and, and, and teach them how to heal themselves. And so they began to send different remedies in their dreams of how to pick the plants and how to take care of them. And, and so the humans came together and, uh, uh, and finally began to be healed. And then the plants and the animals and the humans all came together in a great council. And they decided that from now on, that when a, uh, a Cherokee went out to hunt, he had to sing his prayer song first before he left the house. And if an animal didn't give itself up to him, that day, then he could not kill it. But if he did kill an animal, he had to use every part of it. And, and, and in that way, make uh, good the sacrifice that that animal has made. And if he forgot, there was a little white deer that would come along, a little deer spirit that would come along and, and see that. And if he didn't put tobacco down and thank the earth and thank the creator and thank that animal spirit, that little white deer would put a disease on that person. And so, um, so every one of us is, is, no matter what we do, when we pick a plant, when we take an animal, we put tobacco down, and we thank the animal for giving its life, and we thank the earth for producing it, and we thank the Creator for creating all of this for our benefit. So in that story, I don't have time to talk about maybe all the things that we can gather from that, but I hope that you see that harmony was disrupted and that it took everything together, the plants, the animals, the humans, all to come back together to bring things back into harmony. And as a Ketua, our job on earth is to keep things in harmony. That's who we are. That's what we're about. And we're not doing a very good job. And so I think it's the Western worldview that's preventing that. I'm going to tell you the last story quickly here. So, because uh, I thought of the Humpty Dumpty story, and I knew everybody knew that, but you don't know the story of the Terrapin and the Wolves. So I thought I'll tell you that one at the, at the end here. So, so the Terrapin used to be a giant box turtle. If you know what a box turtle is, the Terrapin there, you know, you find them on land most of the time, sometimes in the deserts. And, and uh, they used to be giant creatures, giant. And, and the Terrapin was a great warrior. And, and uh, the terrapin would walk down the road proudly, and the terrapin would, would tell everybody to get out of the road, get out of his way, and, pe and the animal people would move. You know. So one day a wolf was coming down the road, and the terrapin was walking down the road, and his warrior would get up, and, and the terrapin says, move out of my way. And the wolf decided, 
I'm not going to take it today from the terrapin. I'm not going to do what he said. I'm tired of him bossing me around and bullying everywhere. So, so well, the wolf paid dearly for that. Uh, the terrapin got mad, and the terrapin killed that wolf, and he cut his ears off. And he put his ears around his belt, and then he continued to walk on. I think that was the first recorded incident of road rage, by the way. So, so the terrapin was walking, and, and he was starting to get hungry, and he said, you know, the next village I come to, I am gonna, uh, I'm going to demand that they feed me, because I'm hungry. And I'm going to sleep in their place, and then I'll go on the next day. So, well, it just happened that it was Wolf Town, where he was... I don't know if that was Wolfville up here or because of it. Uh, but Wolftown. And, and so he's told the wolves, he said, I, I want some stew. I want it quick and I want a place to sleep. And, and so as he began to eat the stew, he would pull out those ears. And he began, he was just a glutton. And he began to just take those and use them for a spoon. And they noticed that those were their brother's ears that he was eating that stew with. And so the wolves said to themselves, what are we going to do? He's, he'll kill us if we try to do anything. They said, they put a plan in motion. And so, kind of. And so, so Terrapin woke up the next day, and nobody was in the village. And so he was heading out, and all of a sudden jumped out from behind a bunch of rocks, and all the wolves grabbed him, and they tied him up. And then they said, now what are we going to do with him? So one of the wolves said, well, let's put him in a big clay pot and boil him up. And the terrapin was listening to this, and terrapin said, If you put me in a pot, I'm just going to kick that pot to pieces, and then I'm going to kill every one of you. So they thought, Oh, man, that could happen. I don't, I don't want to do that. So, so someone else said, Well, let's burn him at the stake. Let's put a stake up and build a fire and burn him. And then terrapin said, Yeah, go ahead and do that, because the fire is going to burn through them ropes, and I'm going to jump out of the fire, and I'm going to kill every one of you. And I thought, Oh, man, we don't want to do that. So then someone said, let's push him off the bluff into the river. And so Terrapins were pretty good swimmers back then. So Terrapin knew that would be the best choice. And so he thought, well, I'll just swim out of these ropes when I get in the water. So they, But he pretended like he, he, he didn't want it. And he said, oh, no, no, don't do that. I can't escape if you do that. And so they took Terrapin and they pushed him over the bluff and onto the water. But you know what? It wasn't as soft a landing as Terrapin wanted. The river was low and there was a lot of rocks. And Terrapin fell down and busted the shell into lots of pieces. Lots of pieces. And as Terrapin was sitting there dying, his blood going into the river, um, he began to think. And he thought, I need a healing song. So he began to sing a healing song. Yo, yo, wedge, yo, yo, wedge. And as he began to sing that healing song, little pieces of his shell began to come back to him. And, and he began to sing that song. And the song was, I'm sewing myself back together. I'm sewing myself back together. And so eventually, 13 small pieces came back together. And Terrapin got up and he got out of the water and said, I don't want anything to do with the water anymore. And he walked around. And, but, you know, he was just a very small little box turtle after that. But he walked around with a lot more humility and a lot smaller after that. And what I learned from that story is I apply it to our situation today. 
is that the Western worldview is old terrapin. And it's going to take indigenous people, and in your particular case, the Mi'kmaq people, because we understand ourselves in light of the land. The land forms us, and we form the land together. How to live on this land together.